Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You might think that as homelessness exploded along with housing prices in the Bay Area, that the simplest explanation would suffice to explain it. The rent is too dang high. But instead, a series of folk myths got deployed to explain the surge of encampments and people sleeping in their cars. The unhoused are busting from other places. They come here to take advantage of social services. People don't want help. Anything to avoid having to say, these are our neighbors. Now, a new in-depth San Francisco Chronicle feature tells the story of four homeless people in Oakland, all of whom once owned homes. It's powerful, myth-busting reporting that we'll talk about next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The most recent count of the Oakland homeless population in 2019 found 4,071 unhoused people, an alarming 47 percent increase from just two years before, and the numbers almost certainly haven't improved. In a recent investigation, San Francisco Chronicle reporters spent five months shadowing four Oaklanders with deep roots in the community who lost everything and are now homeless, sometimes mere blocks from houses they once owned. Reporter Kevin Fagan joins us to share what he and his colleagues learned about how Leonard Pumpkin Ambrose, Delbra Taylor, Derek Sue, and Gwyn Teninti aged into homelessness. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hi, Greg. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We also want to invite you into the conversation early, especially if you've struggled to stay in your housing or you or someone in your family has experienced homelessness. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866 733 6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your story to forum at kqed.org. Um, so, Kevin, let's talk about this uh, project. It is the latest of the San Francisco Chronicles, really in-depth reporting on homelessness. Why Oakland this year, and what's different about it from previous years? Well, we started the homeless project. We called it the San Francisco Homeless Project until this year. Six years ago, 
And we took a deep dive into the city and then the area around it uh, with a bunch of media organizations joining us. And each year we've tried to do something a little different. One year uh, we spent 24 hours in a, in a full cycle uh, in San Francisco and documented it through multimedia. And this year uh, we decided that Oakland is the most visible manifestation of homelessness. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that is because when you drive by, you have a lot of freeways, a lot of bar tracks, a lot of open spaces. Uh, it's it's more it's just more visible. You you, you see the tent camps. Uh, you know, people talk about it all the time. And so we took we took a look at that. And you know, frankly, a lot every city in in the Bay Area has its struggles with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, Oakland is Oakland is really trying hard to to address this. And it's it's dug in. I mean, I started covering homelessness in Oakland in the eighties. Right. It's not like this showed up on the landscape. Yeah. How is it different now than it was back when you were covering it in the eighties? Well, it's 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 grown and it's spread throughout the city. Back in the in the eighties, it was really concentrated downtown and under a few overpasses. You'd go to what we called Old Man's Park downtown. It was a pretty steady camp, but you didn't see tents like this. Tents really came along. Uh, to, frankly, since Occupy, Occupy made it um, okay to to have settlements with a bunch of tents. Before that, it was cardboard tarps, a few tents, makeshift things. Uh, it, it the the proliferation of these these actual structures on the street uh, make things stand out more. Mm-hmm. And some of the some of the point in time counts are about the same as they were ten years ago, but you just see them more. I want to talk about some of the individual stories here. Uh, and I want to start out with Gwen Tanindi. Um, mm. Why don't we listen in just to a little cut, just so we can hear her voice. It was a series of events that happened. And over the years at work, my performance started to fail. And so the last year in particular was rough. And I ended up, um, I had a lot of fatigue at that time. And I slept through my alarm clock two days in a row and got fired. <laughs> So, Kevin, uh, tell us how she ended up un- unhoused, her story. Well, it was, uh, it's, it's drug addiction, and she's frank about that, which I really appreciated. I, I, she was the person that I spent my time with. My three colleagues, uh, uh, Sarah Ravani, Lauren Hepler, and J.K. Deneen spent time with her. Uh, Gwen, oh, she's a really sweet soul, you know, but, uh, but uh, captured by fentanyl and heroin. She'll readily admit that, um, uh, you know, when you're addicted like that, and she struggles with some bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. uh, which compounds things. And you self-medicate, it becomes a, just a really bad brew where you can't maintain your job, can't pay your bills, can't make the mortgage. Things just fell, fell through the floor for her. Yeah. And, you know, how common are these kinds of stories where someone has, you know, lived in the community, someone has, you know, owned a home in the community, and then, you know, 5, 10, 20 years later, they're out on the street? Well, fortunately, it's not, you know, uh, super common in in society among all of us. But 80% of the homeless folks in Oakland were living in the county and probably in the city before they became homeless. In San Francisco, it's about 70%. Most Cities have 70, 80, 80% of, uh, of their homeless population homegrown, as we say. And that's one thing we really wanted to get across in this. There, there, were, there, were, there were two things. Uh, the, the fact that most folks are living in the same community uh, for many reasons. And the other is that uh, 
these folks we talked to are all over 50, which in homeless land is considered a senior citizen, as you can generally add 10 to 15 years on to a person's life from streetwear. Uh, this is a growing phenomenon that is really alarming yeah. because as you become older on the street, you start getting more and more medical problems that become harder to, to address. Uh, and, and frankly, as you know, Margot, one of our guests on this show will soon say, uh, nearly half of the folks who were over 50 in the street became homeless when they were over 50 for a, a bunch of really uh, kind of shameful reasons in our society. We should take better care of yeah. and have a better system. You know, let's hear uh, another cut. Let's hear Leonard Pumpkin Ambrose. To see how much my grandmother worked to maintain that property for so long with five boys and a grandchild, just hard to let go. So, yeah, I hang around, but to see how much it's changed for the good down here, it's also pushed out a lot of good people that didn't deserve to be put on the streets. So Leonard's story really gets at one of the key changes uh, over the last 20 years, which was this foreclosure crisis, and in particular, people who took predatory loans and then lost their homes. Um, Tell us uh, about Leonard. Well, you put it in a nutshell, predatory loans uh, put him out. And uh, identification, frankly, um, you know, the the, the cost of a home in in Oakland has tripled uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, But the the income of folks on the lower end has only gone up a few percentage points. Um, it's become a place where you can go buy a house and, a bunch of money, and that drives up the rent and the prices of everywhere around it. It forces people out. And Leonard, uh, he had good jobs. He, his family owned homes. He came back, he was trying to fix houses and he got himself a loan. Uh, yeah. they, he didn't get the home back. I mean, the, the, the bad guys went to prison, but he didn't get his home back. Right. We're talking with reporter Kevin Fagan about the San Francisco Chronicles reporting on the personal struggles of four Oakland residents who became unhoused as they aged. Uh, I'd like to introduce a couple of other guests. Joining us now uh, are Margot Cushell. She directs UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations and is also professor of medicine at UCSF. Welcome, Margot. Thanks for having me. And we also have Latonda Simmons. Uh, who's the interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Latonda, you know, you've heard a couple of these stories. I'm sure that you've heard many more in your work. How common is it that you encounter people who are, you know, have stayed very close to where they owned homes or where their families owned homes? It has been um, in the seven months that I've had the opportunity to perform this work, Uh, My team and I have seen this to be common um, as new faces to the work um, in in more than 70 percent of the interventions that we have supported. Um, Members of the community can be mixed and some from other places, but primarily the individuals that we've engaged are from Oakland, um, holding to the areas that they reside in Oakland and are really actually still very committed to Oakland, um, even in the state of how they're living now. Yeah. Dr. Kushel, this seems to cut against a lot of what people kind of say about homeless people, particularly in San Francisco, but also in Oakland, that people kind of come here for services or other other reasons. 
Yeah, there's this widespread mythology, not only in San Francisco and Oakland, but in pretty much every city across the country. People are convinced that people who are experiencing homelessness in their community are coming from elsewhere. This has been empirically disproven um, in every city. Uh, it's about 70 to 80 to 85 percent are from that community. I think in a way this othering is a little bit of our um, our racism, just to be, just to name it and be frank, um, because people who are homeless uh, because of racism are so disproportionately Black and African American, and also just sort of a collective failure to take responsibility. It just simply isn't true. Yeah, it feels like uh, like a moral loophole. Um, and you know, I know that there's also been some research, even looking within the Bay Area, like yeah. Oakland versus San Francisco, because we know San Francisco has all these services, and yet. People don't, uh, other homeless people from around the Bay Area don't just go to San Francisco. Yeah, it's really striking. I've been following um, a cohort, a group of older homeless adults in Oakland since about 2013, where we recruited 350 folks. They were 15 older. We recruited them in Oakland, have been following them for years. Shockingly few actually wound up in San Francisco where there are more services. It's a it's a wealthier city. Um, and basically people either stay close to home. What we did see is a lot of people go east. They went east to the Central Valley where housing was cheaper. We really did not see much of any movement into San Francisco. Um, and I think that's true throughout. People do tend to come from suburbs into cities because um, because people need, you know, basic services, they need to eat. Basically, that's true everywhere in the country, but we didn't see a lot of movement, let's say, from Oakland into San Francisco. We're talking about homelessness in Oakland and throughout the Bay Area. We're joined by Dr. Margot Cushell, who directs UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations and is a professor of medicine at UCSF, Latonda Simmons, the interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland, and Kevin Fagan, a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, which has done very in-depth work on four Oakland residents who became unhoused in the very communities uh, in which they had owned homes. And we want to invite you into the conversation, especially if you've struggled to stay in your housing or you or someone in your family has experienced homelessness. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about homelessness in Oakland and throughout the Bay Area with Margot Cushell, directs UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations, Latonda Simmons, Interim Homeless Administrator for the City of Oakland, and Kevin Fagan, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, who, along with a team of other Chronicle reporters, did some incredibly in-depth reporting on four Oakland residents who became unhoused as they aged in the very places in which they had uh, very deep roots. I'd like to add in Nick from Vallejo, listener Nick from Vallejo, into the show. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, So my story is I I aged, you know, so I'm 67. um, And uh, I did live in Oakland for almost 20 years. I had a house in Crocker Islands, which is pretty Tony. Mm -hmm. Um, My my wife at the time passed away, so I had to sell the house because we were on a double income at the time. I ended up uh, being single for a while, a widow, and then I remarried and moved to Mill Valley, even higher up the scale, right? Um, So lived there for a few years and then moved to Vallejo simply because of traffic, bought a beautiful place in Vallejo with my wife. She divorced me very quickly, just right just before COVID, and she won everything. So so and my last words were her thanks for making me the first or the, the latest old guy homeless in, in Vallejo. Um, I was working now, so I owned part of a boat, moved on. Uh, no, Nick, I think we lost you, unfortunately. My boat, but... Go ahead. Are you there? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. We lost you for a second. Oh, are you, are you there? So, so basically, I, I moved in with two different people. Uh, one, I owned a piece of a boat, so I moved on the boat for a while. That guy started smoking right at COVID start. He started smoking crystal meth. Mm. Um, so I left the boat, moved back to Vallejo, moved into an apartment, and unfortunately, after six months, my roommate started smoking crystal meth. Because mm. <laughs> this is a big deal in, all over California. And I uh, moved out of there, but luckily, I... I just happened to have just purchased a bus and uh, an old school bus. And so I just thought, you know, I'm just going to, instead of choking myself trying to find rent because Vallejo, like Oakland, the money is going up on rent. Mm-hmm. I just thought, well, I'll just convert it. So I started living in a bus and that's what I do now in Vallejo. I live in a bus. And um, I'd like to say that while I was in Oakland, we, we were living a really good life and we used to buy thousands of socks and underwear and, and, um, you know, stuff for, for women, for, for hygiene and stuff. And we would, we would hand this stuff out and I've kept that up. When I moved on the bus, it became more, more apparent to me just how bad the need is. Mm -hmm. But I would say, I would like to say this about Oakland. At least they have a program to help the homeless. Vallejo's program is get them the heck out of Dodge. You know, Vallejo is, extremely oppressive about all that stuff. Hey, Nick, and, thanks uh, so much for sharing your, sharing your story with us. And, uh, you know, best of, best of luck to you as you, uh, go, go through this, uh, this period. Latonda Simmons, I do want to, uh, talk to you about the, what Oakland, um, has attempted to do and where you're going now, particularly as we see, um, state and federal authorities really try to get, uh, more funds flowing through local communities. Thank you. Um, Hopefully you can hear me well. Yes. Great. Um, Oakland has uh, considered the 47% increase that we saw um, at the point in time count and last reports in 2019 to have such a devastating impact on our communities. The impetus for that for the city at that time was to figure out how to expand 
emergency interventions and temporary shelter locations to address the needs of the unhoused. Um, Oakland, of course, um, like every other city in the state, uh, was left reeling to some degree from the um, dissolving of the redevelopment agencies, which was an incredible source of funding that stabilized both economic and community development planning. And so um, similar to my partners in terms of other cities in the state, um, Oakland had to find ways to begin to build that increment um, and that structural, um, that structural modification to our organization and then the loss of that funding, it has taken a substantial amount of time to build increment to focus again on the development of affordable housing and to keep the momentum there. Yeah. Um, we've stood up approximately 18 interventions um, providing um, transitional uh, shelter, uh, community cabins, RV parking, um, ramped up with wraparound services in an effort to transition people from those facilities into um, housing opportunities, uh, transitional housing that can be more stable for them and qualifying housing. Of course, this comes with layers of the pandemic and that of course ramped up some additional resources, but primarily providing the city only one time resources. And so while we do have additional interventions planned, which could take us up to 2021 20, interventions, what we do know is that this becomes unsustainable um, and it begins to deprioritize in some respects the channeling of funding into the permanent affordable housing that we know our residents needs. And so now we've contemplated that as a strategy and we will be joining those strategies together for a more comprehensive strategy. But of course, you know, Structurally, this is something that is going to take several years to address. Yeah, it's really tough. Kevin Fagan, I wanted to ask you about this. I mean, sometimes when I think yeah. about these problems, I'm I, the, the image of that huge boat that got stuck in the Suez Canal, you know, with all these little <laughs> tiny excavators kind of comes to mind because this is, you know, we have these huge systemic and structural issues about the way that our housing market works, about the way that our, our economy works, particularly as people uh, are, are getting older and have a hard time uh, finding work, particularly if they've been injured or they've had medical issues. And we're kind of counting on these city governments to make up for a lot of really societal problems. Oh, yeah. This, this problem has been building for 40 years. Uh, we're, we're paying the price now. you got a minimum wage that is so low that, as, as the mayor said uh, to me when we were talking about this story, you can't afford rent anywhere in the Bay Area on minimum wage, uh, at least median rent. Um, at, that's unsustainable. The, ho- the cost of housing has gone through the roof. The cost of rent has gone through the roof. Uh, this this is not something just some single city solves all by itself. Need to build more housing. Need to allow uh, quicker affordable housing to be built. Uh, one thing that Margot often points out is that they need to make it more uh, possible for family members to live together, to take each other in, uh, because a lot of rentals will throw you out if you you know move grandpa into the back room. Um, it's it it it's it. it, it it's going to require a lot of different approaches, not just one thing. People want this problem to be solved in six months or a year. Not going to happen. It's, it's got to be a societal shift. Margot Cushel, I wanted to ask you about sort of the regional and state level kind of interventions. It seems to me right now that, you know, we had this major emphasis on trying to build affordable housing but have failed basically 
actually everywhere, really, particularly for people with, with very low incomes. And then along came the pandemic and we got a new kind of uh, of program in, in this Project Home Key and sort of taking over pre-existing buildings and using them as housing. Do you see that as something that is a sustainable strategy and like a real shift in the way that um, that we actually try to, to get more housing for people on with very low incomes? I think it's a both and, you know, we have a nationwide desperate shortage of housing that's affordable to our lowest income households. Nationwide, there are only about 36 units that are affordable and available for every 100 extremely low income households, anyone making less than 30% of the median income in their area. And in California, we're even worse. We're at 23 units per 100. So clearly, we need to do everything. We need to build, but we also need to do creative things like Home Key, which is saying that we can't just solve this problem by building things from scratch, particularly since it has proven to be so difficult in California. So I guess I see it as both and. We need to do things like take over available buildings and take advantage of them and convert them. But if we're not building alongside of that and getting the funding that we need for ongoing costs, we're not going to solve this problem. Yeah. Kim Fagan, let's um, get another story. Um, Maybe let's talk about Derek Sue. Can you tell us a a little bit about him and then we'll hear a cut? Well, he he comes from a uh, a Chinese background. His family came over uh, to America, you know, a century ago or so and owned homes, became very successful, uh, created business, um, had a, had a legacy of, of being land owners <clears throat> and things went south for him. He had several things that went wrong, lost a job, had medical issues, uh, and has been struggling to get back up into home ownership since, and just finds it extremely difficult, especially when you're disabled. Hmm. Um, uh, this is not a kind society to people who have any kind of impediment at all. Yeah. Uh, and he lives in East Oakland, uh, and he, he, he does a lot of work trying to help the, the folks around him, Does works with food banks and gets clothing together. And uh, uh, it's but it's he, he feels like he's digging a mountain out with a spoon. Yeah. Uh, let's hear that uh, cut of Derek Sue. Back in 1966, my parents purchased uh, the family home. It, it was different. It, it was it was a different neighborhood, different people. There were a lot more kids back then. Uh, we stayed there from 1966, and then uh, we, the court uh, took it away uh, in April of uh, 2002, and, and that's when I became homeless. You know, I uh, wanted to uh, bounce off that cut. They, we have uh, a comment from Alan who writes, what role do the families of the unhoused play or not play in the support for these individuals? Do none of them have homes? Since I'm fortunate enough to have a home, I just cannot imagine I would not make room for a family member who was unhoused unless the person had an uncontrollable mental health or addiction problem. Kevin Fagan? Well, each one, of course, has their own narrative about that. Uh, with Gwen's family, anyone who's had an addict in their family knows that uh, things become very difficult. You help, it fails. You help, it fails. Um, and eventually the family says, okay, once you're fully into rehab, we'll give it another try. Uh, that's that's kind of where she's at, unfortunately. Uh, with the other folks, uh, families moved away. Uh, they don't have many relatives. They don't have kids. Um, it's 
it's it's very difficult for people to to uh, engage once someone has become absolutely homeless because uh, moving someone into your house can it can be contentious. Families are all different. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, these are complicated narratives. Yeah, it's say, not like you just say, "Oh, come on in and live here." Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Go ahead. Can I say a word here? Yeah, sure. I mean, we've done a fair amount of work on this. I think there's this widespread mythology that you know people become homeless because they're cut off from their families. I think we need to recognize that that is not true, particularly for Black African American folks who are so overrepresented in the homeless population. You know, less than five percent of San Franciscans are Black. Thirty-seven percent of those homeless are. We found that particularly the Black African American folks are very connected to their families, but their families are mostly renters. Their families are facing the same upstream forces that the people who are homeless are. What they told us is if we bring my loved one in, my landlord's looking for a reason to be evict evict me. They're not on the lease or they're already, our house already has nine people, you know, in a two bedroom house. There are lots of reasons. So I think it's important that we realize that for a lot of people, the families are very involved love them, but they're the same structural forces that are leading to homelessness are making it hard for the families to, um, to support their loved ones. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for making that point. That's a, that's a very important point. And that is a factor in this. There's a Margot Cushell who directs UCSF's center for vulnerable populations. Let's bring Teresa from Berkeley into our conversation. Welcome. Hi there. Um, I've never done this before, so this will be interesting. I actually came from the San Joaquin Valley because I was homeless. So I'm one of those people that did come to the Bay Area for services. Um, I was living in a small town outside Modesto. There wasn't transit. And I started to develop severe health problems with technology. Uh, I ended up going through various shelters in Berkeley and Livermore and finally transferred to San Francisco at the recommendation of Vincent DePaul because of the services. And... uh, because I was so well-behaved, I was awarded with a housing voucher and was told that um, I would be giving housing that would be uh, conducive to my health conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, in the process, I was brutally assaulted and beaten, and mm-hmm. the uh, district attorney's office wanted me out of San Francisco for my health. And all the housing programs uh, ignored this and overrode it and kept me in San Francisco which led to more violence. And then um, I ended up being put in one apartment that was uh, not good for my health, uh, physical and mental, including a violent neighbor that Mm -hmm. really traumatized me. And then I found some other apartments, but they were close to some of the technology that wasn't good for me, but I was so desperate, I went ahead and took it. And the antennas and the telephone towers, their signals started striking my head and my brain and knocking me unconscious. And I asked to be let on my lease, and they wouldn't let me. And it took me about three years to leave. Actually, it took me five years total to get out of San Francisco. And I finally moved to Berkeley this summer, and my first apartment was full of toxic mold. And I had to vacate, and I got a second apartment but there were some suspicions about it, and the manager... Teresa, where are you living now? I'm living in Berkeley, um, and um, the uh, manager here has turned out to be abusive, and there's um, wood fungus and mold making me sick, and there's also more antennas that are making me sick again and causing neurological problems. 
and I'm going to have to vacate and become homeless. And it's real tragic because I have a master's degree and I was on the process of publishing an article. And that's never going to happen now. There's too much neurological injuries. I'm so sorry, Teresa. This is a really, really tough story. And I'm sorry that this is happening for you. You know, Margot Cushell, for, for someone like Teresa, what kind, what are some of the answers? I mean, this seems like a very, very difficult situation. Yeah, Teresa, I'm so sorry that you're going through this um, ordeal. I think, um, you know, it sounds like um, you, you know, need um, some support to, and some housing that is safe for you. I think it really emphasizes the traumatic experience of homelessness and how that trauma then makes everything so um, difficult. And so I really um you know, hope that you're able to get to a place that's safe for you and that has the supports you need to, to get back um, to the life that you were living before all of these traumas. Yeah. You know, Kevin Fagan, um, before we go to a break, I wanted to uh, hear just a, a little bit about Delbra Taylor, another one of mm. the people that you're, the, the Chronicle profiled. Yeah, the, and, you know, when we were talking about family taking folks in, Delbra doesn't have family can take her in. Uh, you know, uh, uh, pumpkin has some of that element that Margo's talking about where you, know, you can't pull people in or you're going to get, lose your rentals. Um, uh, she used the little money that she had from her family after her, her, uh, relatives had died, uh, to buy a unit or a, a, a mobile home, uh, and then got taken by a bad loan. Mm. Uh, uh, was, had an eviction on her record from seven years before that, um, is supposed to clear off your record, but uh, uh, was used to prevent her from getting new rentals. Uh, she essentially rattled down the ladder until she's now in a, a FEMA trailer, which is a you know an emergency housing uh, during the pandemic, and uh, is applying for subsidized housing and, and has a good chance of getting some. But it's you know she had a good job. Uh, the trouble was not having anywhere to go once she hit the bottom. Wow. Yeah, that is, it's a really tough story. We're going to hear her voice when we get back from the break. We're talking about homelessness in Oakland and across the Bay Area with Kevin Fagan, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, Latonda Simmons, interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland, and Margot Cushell, who directs UCSF's Center for Vulnerable Populations. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about homelessness, uh, primarily in Oakland, but across the Bay Area with Margot Cushel, who directs UCSF's Center for Vulnerable Populations, also professor of medicine at UCSF, Latonda Simmons, interim homeless administration, uh, administrator for the city of Oakland, and Kevin Fagan, a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, before the break, uh, Kevin was telling us about Delbra Taylor, one of the people that the San Francisco Chronicle profiled, um, an Oakland resident who lost her housing and is now um, unhoused. Uh, and I'd like to hear just a, a cut of her voice as we can hear her. It's been hard. And I would tell anybody, don't take life for granted. Because everything is not promised. No matter how right you are, no matter what you do right, you still can end up looking like you did wrong. And because of that, um, I became homeless. That was Delbra Taylor. Um, I, you know, one of the things that's really tough is the difficulties that people like Delbra or, you know, Teresa uh, Collar earlier from Berkeley, about just getting into housing, even if somebody has like a Section 8 uh, voucher or they have some sort of uh, support, it becomes very, very difficult. The, the the barriers pile up to getting back into housing. Um, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about the, some of those barriers and, and why they they prevent people from getting back out of the streets? Sure. Uh, oh, and I just, just wanted to make clear, in, in doing this story, Sarah Ravani, uh, my partner on this, uh, is the one who spent all the time with, uh, with Delbra. And Lauren spent time with Derek and JK with uh, Pumpkin. It's not like I was hanging with all four of these folks. Um, uh, just, just to give them credit because yes, sure. we all worked incredibly hard on this thing. Uh, but the, the barriers to getting in, uh, uh, it's, you know, dealing with bureaucracy, as anyone knows, is, is incredibly hard. But getting a Section 8 uh, a rental voucher, which lets you find uh, an affordable unit and then pays much of the rent. Um, that's all well and good. The, the, the waiting lists are super long for it. But once you get it, it can be very hard to find anyone who will rent to you with it. Many of those, those vouchers go unused. Um, finding subsidized housing, the, the waiting list is, is huge. There's a waiting list of 21,000 people for affordable units just through Eden Housing alone, one of the main providers in, in Alameda County. It's a... Uh, uh, it, it's it's really tough. When you're on the bottom, climbing back up again is really tough. Yeah, Latonda Simmons, what can the city of Oakland do to reduce those barriers for people to get back into housing? Um, the city is focused on uh, increasing its level of support and services for anti-displacement. Um, we've done some in terms of the um, the um, housing department. Um, we were able to obtain money from the state and then channel additional resources to focus on anti-displacement. But specifically as it relates to reducing the barriers, we, we did a lot of work with our county partners. Um, one of the things we studied is what those barriers could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a report that was produced focusing on how you include equity in the design of homelessness systems. And many of the recommendations really lent to additional deep subsidies to be able to aid in providing gap support in these many places where we see that there are gaps and and, and structural and and economic um, challenges and and deficits here. Um, The city is focused on expanding those options throughout city programs and 
and we're sort of leading in the contemplation of how we do that. And very thoughtfully, we will be applying um, the methodologies that are referenced in the report to some of the ways in which we structure people to transition from the interventions that we currently have, the others that we will stand up uh, into the units that we hope to be able to also plan to make available mm-hmm. to the unhoused here. So it's it's complex, but it will require a substantial investment from ourselves as well as the state and the county to be able to bridge the distance and where these economic gaps exist and these procedural gaps exist. Yeah. Uh, Steve from Oakland, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Go ahead. So, uh, yeah. I first uh, want to, uh, I'm president of the Coalition for a Better Oakland, and I want to uh, start by thanking Latonda Simmons and the city of Oakland. They are doing some wonderful things with tiny houses and and uh, Project Home Key or Room Key and things like that. Um, the problem is that those interventions are never going to be big enough um, to house all of Oakland's 4,500 homeless people. And as a result, we continue to have these encampments uh, spread across the city. And the thing that I, I, I want to bring to people's attention is that more than a year ago, in October 2020, the city council unanimously passed the so-called encampment management policy. It then became city law. It was supposed to be enacted on January 1 of this year, but the city council came under such fire from homeless advocates that they were afraid to implement their own encampment management policy. Uh, My comment is that a lot of us are afraid that we're going to have these encampments for years and years and years, particularly in the parks. And the encampment management policy specifically stated that encampments in parks would not be tolerated, that people would be given 72 hours. And if they did not remove their encampments from the parks, there would be certain interventions. So Mm -hmm. I guess, I, I have a question. I don't know who it maybe. Yeah, I, well, let's let's put it to Latonda, Steve. No, I, I, you know, we know that there is this encampment uh, management uh, plan, which was passed by the city council. Latonda, maybe you could tell us two things. What was that policy supposed to do? And if you agree that the city is not implementing that uh, encampment management program, um, why is that? Yes. Um the, the city council most certainly did pass an encampment management policy uh, October of last year with the intent that the implementation commenced January of this year. Mm-hmm. And what I'll tell you is I've had the opportunity to literally perform this work. So there are two things that we have to add as a, a, just a bit of context here. Um, it most certainly prioritizes uh, the closure of encampments in what we have been calling high sensitivity zones you know, most closely in proximity to residences, businesses, um, blocking public rights of way and sidewalks um, and other elements um, based on specific, you know, health and safety findings. And then, of course, there is um, the low sensitivity areas, which we would hope could be maintained. What we know about encampments and um, circumstances in terms of the city is that there is a ridiculous amount of illegal dumping that happens also. And that adds to a level of complexity with respect to the ability to maintain standards of cleanliness. Um, The encampment management policy has most certainly been implemented. 
What I'll tell you is the numbers that were promulgated from 2019 focused on there being a total of a, you know, over 150 encampments. You know, as we continue the work responding to complaints over the last seven months, we know that there's more than 300 encampments, approximately upwards to about 400 encampments. In that time, in the time that I've had the ability to perform the work we have scheduled and addressed 120 locations and perform about 145 interventions. And we're continuing the work. Um, we've ramped up the activities from one to two encampments a week, upwards to three, excuse me, upwards to five to six a week. We have expanded the teams, adding two additional cleaning teams, expanding our outreach. I think the other part that brings a level of complexity here is, you know, the federal laws, um, the federal case related to Martin B. Voisey. And it has really kind of changed the calibration of what the expectations should be. And I, that, think, I think that case held, right, that you must offer people housing that if they're going to clear their encampment. And what that means is that we are tied, if you will, to sort of a per capita genuine offer. Now, Wait, what is that? And, and I would say that you, would take, you wouldn't take a single apple and shop it across six people. You would want to make sure that shelter and, home, and housing um, would be available to all of the members of an encampment per capita, right, person for person. And to make sure that those resources match the needs, because if you have issues, um, you know, you have pets, you have possessions you wish to bring, you have circumstances where you wish to keep your family together, then the matching of those resources to the unhoused needs becomes important. I want to say that um, we've continued that work, and what we do know is that when the needs don't match, or when the unhoused may, in some circumstances, not be willing to accept it, we can proceed with closing the encampment. But what we know is that they will go and re-encamp in a new new area or join an existing encampment and enlarge it. And so the public's frustration and perception, you know, seems to be driven from what appears to be a, not the appropriate level of reduction of people on the street. But if people decline the housing, then we're not necessarily able to drive them, you know, or, or take them away somewhere. Yeah. So that is a level of complexity and it kind of lends to the cyclical conversation that we've all been having here, right? Which is what is the best way to address homelessness? It's not just obviously um, shelter and housing, right? But it's also those wraparound services to be able to assist the unhoused into transitioning into these these offers that we have. And then there's, of course, the very low quantity of housing and shelter that's available. Um, we are continuing the work. Um, we are looking yeah. forward to the point in time count that's coming up because we do believe we need to anchor the entire conversation with not just the amount of work that we have ramped up and performed, but the real numbers in terms of people on the street and the context of Martin B. Boise, which does require due process for how we perform yeah. this work. Thank you, Latonda. Uh, Margaret Cushell, UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. What do we know about encampment management? Like, what, like you know, this is a, this is a new thing. <laughs> and I think it, it still remains shocking for many Bay Area residents to see these encampments. What do we know about, uh, about their formation? Are, are they, I mean, I, I just want to ask, are they good for the homeless people in them relative to not being in an encampment? I, I, I just want to know uh, on a research level what we know about what these encampments are doing. I mean, I think we have to 
recognize here that nobody wants to be in encampment, that people want to be housed. When we have done work, um, our work and multiple studies across the country, when you offer people real options, permanent housing where they have autonomy, as um, Latonda Simmons says, the services that they need to help them maintain that housing, people do really well. We know that homelessness rises with the cost of housing. When there's a disconnect between the cost of housing and people's income, homelessness rises and Oakland has had the most rapid rental costs in the country. So I think it's a little bit hard to know um, how to answer this question. You know, for instance, if the, if the conversation is encampment versus a shelter, I'm not sure that people have a picture of what shelters are like. They're generally large uh, warehouse-like environments where people need to leave during the day, where people don't have privacy, they can't bring their pets, they can't bring their partners, they can be very scary for people. In the COVID pandemic, they were extremely dangerous. And we know from our research that actually being outside was safer than being in a shelter insofar as being homeless goes. But, but shelters cost an incredible amount of money. They don't solve homelessness. And usually when um, cities try to put up shelters, they face a lot of opposition from the community. People can't just sort of Star Trek-like dissemble themselves and disappear. They need a place to go. And I think we need to think of encampments as the result of not having other options. Places like New York, put everybody into shelters. Um, but I can tell you what the research shows is that they don't do very well there. There's not a ton of evidence that they do a lot better. They are out of sight. And the city and the state winds up spending an incredible amount of money that otherwise could go towards um, housing. So I think there's clearly a need for some emergency shelter. Hopefully that's non-congregate, like your own room, like trailers or hotels, like Project Room Key as a way to, you know, as an interim measure, but I would hate to see all of our resources going into sheltering um, people who are homeless because it simply won't stop homelessness. And eventually those will become overcrowded and we'll just get more people outside. So for and, you, I mean, if, if you had all the resources, do you think that you could deploy enough of them to actually reduce the amount of suffering that's that's on our streets? Or do you feel like that as long as the economy continues to generate these, like uh, the way our economy works here in the Bay Area, as long as it continues to generate these housing prices and yeah. these uh, low-wage jobs, that like kind of no amount of Band-Aid funding, even if it were a lot, would actually get us to a place where there are not tons of people forced out onto the street? I mean, I think as long as the structure of our general economy, right, where where the minimum wage has not increased for you know a million years, it has not kept up with the price of inflation, where we have this dramatic, dramatic shortage of affordable housing, homelessness is going to be with us. I, I find it interesting that mayors and city councils always get blamed for the problem, where we really let Congress... Um, and the president off the hook where they could, they are the ones who don't have to balance their budget. They are the ones who could decide overnight, for instance, to fully fund housing choice vouchers. I'm not sure if people realize that section eight or housing choice vouchers of, of the people who qualify only one in four actually 
get it. And if we fully funded them, it would make an enormous, enormous difference that the federal government sort of backed out of funding the development of affordable housing. I think we need to do a lot of things. California needs to get its act together in terms of zoning, in terms of creating more housing. The federal government needs to fund it. What we do know is that given the housing that people can afford, we can get nearly everybody into housing. We have tried, you know, we have worked with the folks who are have the most severe, severe impairments and have shown that we can get upwards of 90% housed permanently. Mm. Um, and when we work with folks with less severe impairment, it, it's, you know, that it's basically a hundred percent. What we don't have is we don't have the structures. We have an economy that that is increasingly split, you know, with the haves mm-hmm. and the haves nots. We don't have the housing. And I don't think it's fair to ask the cities to try to solve this problem when the underlying conditions are so poor. Yeah. Kevin Fagan, last question for you. Carolyn writes, I find it slightly extractive to use the stories of homeless people and the trauma they face to shed light on these issues and not asking them what they need. Relying on the experts and not asking the most impacted about solutions may reinforce inequity and abuse. How did you see that? I mean, obviously, you've been doing this reporting for for many years. How, How do you see that? How do you respond to that kind of comment? Well, I think you have to listen to all sides. You have to listen to the experts, the people making decisions, and the people in the street. One thing I was going to, uh, and in and in temporary housing, the whole spread. And one thing I wanted to emphasize is, like Margot said, I've never met anyone who lived in the street, lived outside, who wanted to be there. Uh, that's that's just you know you hear that some people say they like the outdoor life and so forth. Well, sure, maybe in your twenties when you're you know, traveling around, but then when you slip all the way into true homelessness, no one wants to sleep outside. Everyone wants a home. And and during the early thousands, there was a thought among policy leaders that we're going to get rid of all the shelters and put people straight into permanent housing. That's a beautiful thought, and it would be wonderful. But what's developed over the years is there isn't enough, of course, housing to put people into, so we need to stand up these things. Mm-hmm. Things like cabins have a lot of promise because mm-hmm. congregate shelters don't just – just aren't as efficient as in, in keeping people inside as as cabins and individual sites. Um, so it it's it's the the myths the myths that people want to be outside that that's just not true. And the, the reality that there's not enough housing to put people into that is true. Yep. We've been talking about Oakland's growing homelessness crisis with Latonda Simmons, interim homeless administrator for the city of Oakland, Kevin Fagan, who you just heard, a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and Margot Cushell, who directs the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations. Thanks for those calls and people who shared their stories uh, of being unhoused. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with host Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.